Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. I was about to say 1941. Um, so I guess we are, uh, this is the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I don't know if you call an attack on the United States an anniversary. That seems like too positive a word. Maybe we are commemorating the 80th I don't know what you could, I guess you could do call it an anniversary. Anyway, um, uh, it's interesting because um, that that is uh, those are the those are the two the two dates in American history that everyone knows that are tragedies, right? Are are September 11th and December 7th, and I guess we know December 7th because of the phrasing of that FDR speech yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Um, Anyway, just occurred to me as it was coming out of my mouth. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we we uh, we find ourselves yet again uh, in the conundrum of watching uh, politicians go. Uh, American politicians go absolutely. Um, uh, haywire uh, over the uh, Omicron variant while we another yet another day passes and there is no word of a single death from the Omicron variant anywhere on the planet Earth. Noah, uh, you, you, were, you were startled last night to get an alert from the New York Times to this effect. Correct. Uh, <clears throat> there have been rumors and buzzings, hints, and suggestions, but <clears throat> South African researchers finally compiled the data that they have from the Omicron, Omicron variant into a report that can be analyzed and peer-reviewed. And the upshot of the report is essentially that, yes, far more contagious, um, yes, likely far less severe, uh, in a way that is very hopeful insofar as its severity and the rapidity of its spread can end up replacing or supplanting the prominence of other variants that are actually more severe and result in worse outcomes as a result of infection, which would uh, render this virus far less deadly, obviously, and um, paradoxically, much less of a threat. Ultimately, good news. Um, it's a sort of good news that you would think would be shouted from the rooftops, um, but we're, the public doesn't seem to have much appetite for good news, at least the people who consume news for a living and for entertainment um, and do so uh, manically and obsessively, they don't seem to be welcoming this as good news. Uh, so you're calling you wonder this a, why. So you're saying you're I mean, I, something just occurred to me, which is that um, this is now like COVID fan service. You guys know the term fan service, right? Which is this uh, conundrum in the in the uh, popularization of popular art that uh, relies that 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 arises from you know sort of small but passionate followers and uh, comic book readers or um, science fiction fans that kind of thing and then the question is when they take some work of some comic book work and make a movie out of it or a TV show out of it. How much of what they do needs to be fan served? How much of what they do needs to needs to serve the interest of the small but incredibly powerful and potent base of people whose passion for the material has really given it gives it its sort of um, jumping off point? And uh, and and there's no answer to this in this debate, but the um, the Omicron uh, going back into sort of like a covid panic over a variant for the people that you're talking about not the public but the very online people in the united states on twitter social media work in newsrooms um is like it's almost like fan service because what we're actually getting is you know what there's no plot here there's actually no plot like there's a van i mean there, or it's, an it's interesting, just a big fight sequence plot. it's a lot or of it's explosions. Not even a, or it's not even a or there aren't any explosions. The point is that this is the, this may be either the dog that didn't bark or maybe the um, escape route out of COVID entirely, both of which are not 
you know, melodramatic, conspiratorial, feel bad stories, but maybe, maybe the opposite, not that people getting sick from anything is something that anybody should celebrate. But, I, I will um, grudgingly concede that it's too early to, to know definitively one way or the other <clears throat> what this means. Um, but it's too early for anybody to know what this means. And I'll, I'll pat myself on the back because no one else is going to pat, pat, pat. But the very second that this happened, all of us on this podcast entertained the idea that this might be good news. I wrote it on the blog that it might be good news because the reaction universally among the people who consume this sort of fan service and who feed into it, namely the public health apparatus that is a ubiquitous fixture on cable news, uh, welcomed this event with abject terror. It was time to lock down again. It's time to shut travel down again. Some, in fact, we did shut travel down again from a bunch of African nations for no discernible reason because many of them didn't even have Omicron variant cases. Uh, after knowing that it was already spreading in places like Western Europe and Canada and indeed the United States. But we should still, even today, they're still like, well, why don't we just demand that travelers quarantine for 14 days anyway, just in case, you know, what's the harm? Well, the harm is 14 days of lost economic activity. That's a right. big and, deal. And the, the harm is also distancing ourselves ever more from reality, uh, which which, you know, makes resuming anything resembling normal life impossible. It, it occurs to me when you talk about this being fan service, that even before the pandemic, there was a uh, sort of marketplace for uh, disaster porn of various stripes and, and infectious disease porn as well. Um, meaning there was there were a group of people who would follow outbreaks of, you know, uh, foot and mouth disease, you know, somewhere or, or, or whatever else. And, you know, or bad weather, you know, uh, you know, occurring somewhere. And, and that marketplace has now become mainstream as a result of all this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there was a point, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when it started to become clear that there was an, an interesting Venn diagram yeah, unity uh, between uh, people who love to study and, get in the innards of poles, these kind of pole heads, um, and people who are obsessed with weather patterns. My friend Harry Anton at CNN was one, and uh, uh, Nate Silver, uh, a couple of other people. Like, there was apparently an interesting kind of congruence here that if you were interested in one, you were interested in the other. And there is this world of catastrophists, people who are, fascinated by the patterns of potential uh, catastrophes and of course then you get into the world in which like like doomsaying uh, economics uh, people who study macroeconomics you know they predict 19 of the last two epidemics just like people say you know somebody who says we're in trouble we're in trouble if you're Nouriel Rubini or something he predicted 19 of the last three recessions um so there, this is a this is a thing in the world that we now know, and the thing is that um, we seem to be, or or there's something about the nature of social media that privileges this over calm. It privi it privileges people who who assert without assert very boldly X or Y or Z, and then other people link to it because it seems authoritative, and then it kind of rolls down. It's like a boulder rolling down a hill and there's no stopping it. Um, there was an incident yesterday on Twitter, uh, a, a website I never heard of, or a guy citing a website I never heard of whose innards were very hard to figure out, but looked like a cheesy website with weird ads and stuff. Breaking. Canada declares no male under the age of 30 should ever should take Moderna because of because of the threat of myocarditis. And I was like, wow, my God, really? I mean, Canada is a leading industrial country on the planet Earth. And that is an incredibly serious finding by the Canadian you know, National Health Service or whatever, whoever it is that would make those determinations. Canada has been very hawkish. On COVID, you know, very serious lockdowns, people like getting $10,000 fines if they, you know, leave their neighborhood or something. So I click through 
this is a lie. Like this was all set up. In fact, Noah and I both went and we eventually found a story, which is the summary of a report on myocarditis, the Advisory Committee on Immunization in Canada that finds, uh, that actually says uh, COVID mRNA vaccines, Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, Comirnaty, and Moderna spike vaccines continue to have a good safety profile and provide excellent protection against symptomatic illness. Somebody, some anti-vaxxer lunatic, decided just to tell a lie, right? Just, just say uh, no, no, to 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 create make this fake news story, and because it says breaking. Hundreds of people retweeted it, and now there are probably a million people, at least on Earth, who now believe that Canada has has announced that no male under the age of well, 30 should take the Moderna It's not just breaking, right? It's breaking your worst priors confirmed, right? Breaking your, your, you, what you always thought was true is true. Like it has to tickle that erogenous zone somehow. Well, right. Well, so, but so they, you have this interest, you have this now ideological interest. Again, there is a world of people who are, uh, st- who are obsessed with statistics, who will view any form of statistical analysis that says that there is a problem with any vaccine and just highlight every possible story on, on, on that, in that regard. Right. I mean, Cheryl Atkinson, the former Atkinson, the former CBS News reporter who is an anti-vaxxer and who basically uh, has done great reporting work, investigative reporting work in her life, but is but is a committed anti-vaxxer and still believes that vaccines cause autism and stuff like that. There's no length to which she will not go to publicize any piece of information that, you know, supports her priors or supports her supports her side and that's another there's an element of, of that conversation and there's an element of that that i'm not sure is obviously not well well reasoned um <clears throat> but is it predicated on i mean she she went in that direction after a long period of challenging conventional wisdom um right. elite wisdom which is a valuable beat Uh, certainly a valuable uh, psychological predisposition to say, okay, well, this is the consensus. If everyone's saying this, you know, sort of the 10th man theory and that's good, but becoming overly invested in that as a, as a source of identity leads you in the direction of mania and conspiratorial thinking. I mean, I think it's a very, that's a very good point. Yeah. That, that, um, that being a heterodox or believing refusing to believe in the conventional wisdom or, you know, orthodox answers to everything um, can become after a time, almost a, a, a fetish. And that, uh, and that every story uh, is being mistold or being told to benefit the interests of some corporate interest or something. And you're never told the truth and nothing is ever, Truthful. That said, I mean, Cheryl Atkinson is not one of these people who's retelling a false story about Canada banning the Moderna vaccine for for men under the age of 30. Um, But I'm sure that there is, again, a Venn diagram of people who follow Cheryl Atkinson, you know, with great passion and people who are instantly going to jump on some dubious or false story like this to to. um, and, and spread it around. So it's it's a dangerously easy habit um, to develop too, because it's like flicking a switch. Once you allow yourself to um, um, be a be a contrarian on on an issue that you know there's uh, on which there seems to be a consensus, you find no shortage of evidence for a whole array of things um, that that you find reason to now question. I also think that, you know, it's very hard when when standards are shifting and the ground is shifting under you. A lot of us, you know, you basically sort the world into camps. I don't mean, I mean, a lot of people do it into partisan camps. So you, you know, hate the party you don't vote for and you believe that they're acting in bad faith and all of that, that, that we know about. But I mean, like things shift. We're in a period of a certain amount of intellectual shift, for example, in which people 
you know, whom I absolutely reviled in previous, you know, not not so long as a decade ago, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, others um, are doing work that I can't dismiss or that I that 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 uh, in which they seem to be going against a lot of their own priors uh, or, you know, finding discomfort in some of the things that I find discomfort in. And that is a hard transition to make intellectually from somebody whom, you know, you you thought not only thought ill of, but thought was actually doing harmful, was was promoting harmful ideas and dangerous ideas to say, well, he did that before, but these 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 things that he's saying now, I like. So I, I guess he's okay now. So you can see how it's it's hard because we all sort. We all have to kind of sort and 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 take shortcuts and use shorthand. It's like if someone, you know, it's like a critic that you know uh, has sent you to one too many bad plays or bad movies or something. It's like the shorthand is if he likes it or she likes it, I'm going to hate it, and if they if she hates it, I may like it. And so, you know, you don't you don't take their word for it anymore if you ever did. It's a little like that here, but so heterodoxy is important. It's a form of intellectual freedom, but when it becomes, when it, when it, when it becomes the province of uh, everything is heterodox and don't believe nothing, believe absolutely nothing. Um, and, and there is a lot of that in the, in the, in the world of people like us who are outraged by public health officials and their, draconian authoritarian hunger to control uh human behavior and all of that and then believing anything like they're you know it's like almost you just follow the logical consequences of your argument about where anthony fauci and howard zucker of new york and uh i don't know you know liana Wen and stuff where they go wrong and then you say well anybody who says anything like we better be cautious about omicron is a servant of this you know creeping authoritarian fascism because it's not obviously you should proceed with caution in the middle of a pandemic which is not yet over the death rate is climbing again over in America, we were we were at 900 uh, a week ago, and we're now at a thousand or 1100 a day now. That's not because of Omicron; um, it's still because of Delta. But you know, we're not out of this. You know, I, I think that uh, this is this is what you're describing is responsible for um, a, a part of the split that we we see on the right. Um, one aspect of the of the several splits we see on the right is that. Uh, it's sort of not enough for people like us, conservatives like us, to be skeptical of stupid things. Uh, I have, you know, friends on the right who, uh, with whom I now have sort of tension with because that that skeptic, healthy skepticism isn't enough. I have to be sort of nihilistic in my distrust of everything. Then, then, then I'm on. But then, then I'm okay, and then I understand what's going on. Well, and you're expect you're expected to publicly state your opposition to things like vaccination in order to prove that your skepticism is genuine rather than just you know partisan or or instrumental. And I I will say though that to to John to your earlier point um, in the podcast about social media and how it spreads this stuff, I think it also has a weird effect on those who want to keep the crisis going. And the example I'll give you is the the New York Times reporter who was tweeting a, a thread about how horrified she was about how people weren't wearing their masks properly in line uh, to get on an airplane recently. And this is the this is the reporter who's who's bungled her reporting of COVID multiple times after they fired the very good science reporter um, who a, a lot of rich white kids uh, were offended by on, on a so, New York Donald Times. Mc, yeah, they yeah, fired Donald, Don, they filed Do, Donald McNeil. Right. And then the lead COVID reporter is a poor uh, Apoorva Mondavilli. Yes, and she's had and she's several an embarrassment. She's terrible. She's she's made serious and and very simple errors uh, of both judgment and interpretation. But she had this long thread just tweeting about, oh, this is terrible. This person has a mask under their nose. This person doesn't have the right mask. 
And the thing is, if you put that out on social media, she got a lot of, yes, it's, isn't it awful? It's just terrible. So there are two things here that struck me. One is that I don't need, I don't want to know just how neurotic the New York Times science reporter is on COVID. That makes me mistrust her judgment and her reporting even more. But the second thing is she's getting a lot of positive feedback for her neuroticism and, and she can ignore or block the people who say, you're crazy, calm down. It's not that big a deal. Um, and so the, that feedback loop among the people who are charged with responsibly informing the public is also worrisome. Let the record reflect that when we returned from Thanksgiving break, I introduced a theory that you all mocked that the reason why this became such a giant deal and had such an outsized reaction in the face, and it, it, despite the dearth of evidence to base any reaction on, was because it broke right on, the, on Thanksgiving night. And the main story dominated the Friday after Thanksgiving, when the only people who are consuming news and talking about news on an engine that generates response and reaction from elite quarters, Twitter and other social media venues are manics and lunatics and people with nothing better to do than to obsess over current events who genuinely drove the news cycle. In my view, I think it contributed. I really do. Okay. I want to, I want to, uh, I want to throw a brushback pitch at you, but before I do that, it's time to remind people that as you are considering holiday giving uh, presents under the tree, uh, we, we members of the Jewish faith have already had our eight nights of <clears throat> insane present giving. So uh, we, I now, I now move on to the rest of you to say our friend David Bonson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, is a fantastic Christmas gift uh, for any young person or indeed any person who wants a uh, easy-to-follow daily guide to uh, the both the economic realities that we live with uh, and the way they connect to faith tradition and to... Uh, our American liberty. Um, David uh, divides us into 250 individual pages exploring themes in economics um, and uh, making sure that he shows how um, faith and liberty are inextricably linked to the proper practice of um, economics to encourage human flourishing. So that is There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Um, go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go wherever you find fine books uh, and, uh, and make this a wonderful stocking stuffer for your everybody, for everybody in your family and among your friends. Uh, David Bonson of the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Okay, here's the brush. Br here's the brush back pitch. Um, you're saying that this uh, happened because uh, people on Twitter and on social media had nothing else to talk about for three days, and you know threw everybody into a panic. A contributing I'm, factor. Okay, I believe, and I think you can now see this in Bill de Blasio's kind of seizure uh, of, of, a, of a private sector mandate uh, in New York that will take place four days before his mayoralty is over, uh, what, and uh, various other hawkish behaviors, Biden's that Biden suspending travel from African countries, uh, ginning up testing and stuff like that at airports, um, all of that. Uh, I believe that Democratic politicians, and apparently de Blasio wants to run for governor, they think that COVID hawkishness is their sweet spot, that this is politically something that is good for them. They believe in what they're doing. I'm not saying that they're doing this cynically. But that A, they believe in what they're doing, and B, that this is good for them, that this is what people want, this is what they deem leadership, this is what the people in their bubble make clear uh, they like them most for, and they are going to lean into this when they get a chance because nothing is going right uh, for a lot of these people 
and we can go into some of the urban crime stuff in a minute. And so uh, they have a political opportunity and they're going to feed into it whether or not Twitter or whatever it says, whatever it says. This is what their pollsters are telling them. This is what their advisors are telling them. Uh, don't say, no, this is nuts. We need to calm down and live with the disease. This may be a way for us to learn how to live with the disease, which is what Biden should be saying. But he doesn't want to say that. He wants to look tough because they still haven't fixed the you know supply chain problem. Like the more you look at the the present the present circumstances under which we live as a result of COVID, he's getting blamed for them. So he's got to look like a fighter, a fighter against the disease, a fighter against the variant. So that's my, anyone want to share? So, so this is the big fight between me and Noah. So Abe and Christine, you, you, uh, you serve as the, you're the, you're the, you're the judges. I'm not saying you should be North Korean judges. You're working the refs. Or the, or the you know, the East German judges, I should say. But please ref. Well, I mean, I, I hate to do this. I think you're both right. Um, but 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 I guess I, in the end, I, I weigh I, I come down on, on John's side because I, I think regardless of when this news broke, we'd be looking at more or less the same thing. Um, I think that there's an opportunity in in um, in the new variant um, uh, because you as I as I think I said, Noah, when you first in introduced this theory, the stories that initially broke were about the crazy, funky, ramped up spikes uh, in in the in the in the proteins uh, on the variant. Um, and that in and of itself was created this sort of scary sci fi uh, news hook um, that was simply not going to be ignored uh, no matter what. Yeah, not to I, not to step on Christine, but I don't think John's wrong either. I just think you're talking about an environment that will signal to politicians that there is reward out there for behaving like maximalists. Otherwise, how would they know? Well, and and one one point of uh, order for to to bolster Noah's general argument is that this has happened with other news scandals on long holiday weekends, not necessarily COVID related. There is a weird trend where everybody's like stuck at home, you know, including reporters and and whatnot, with with their you know maybe with their extended family, and everyone's a little stir crazy, and then some weird thing come pops up on their news feed, and it becomes this obsession because they have nothing else to do. So there have been other. I, I should I should go back and look through. I'm sure someone's compiled them, but th this is a weird social media tick. Like certain stories that would otherwise be overlooked on a regular news day do get more play for a couple of like maybe a 48 hour cycle on holiday weekends. Yeah, well, that, Human that nature. Was, okay, that that was an excellent form of adjudication. Of course, we have a problem because we only have two judges and not three, and so you know. There's now there's no resolution. But Abe's there's always no... right. Abe's always the wise. Abe is always right. So okay. Well, good. So Abe's Abe said <laughs> except, I was right. So I'm except no. Abe. Abe earlier this podcast said uh, foot foot and mouth disease when I when I meant hoof and mouth disease. So I'm not always. Ah, uh, hoof is a foot. Yeah. I like foot and mouth disease is a is a is a much better has 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 is much more flavorful I would say and uh, and you know and, and and interesting as a as a metaphor uh, no matter what. Um, but uh, when I say nothing is going right, I mean, um, we've been, uh, it was, I think, 15 years ago that uh, Walter Russell Mead came up with this notion of the um, the blue state model, uh, referring to the rise in more activist, a new kind of more activist government uh, that was seeking uh, in blue states to how would you describe it to uh, push liberal and leftist nostrums through public policy uh, um, to, to uh, abjure or, or, or no longer think about being held back by fiscal responsibility or uh, um, let's say the hard won truths of the last 30 years about public safety and things like that, that they would just pu push forward with their more aggressive uh, campus originated ideas about how to, how best to organize society in a fairer and more equitable way. 
and that over time this was gonna this was costing money it was creating uh problems and conflicts within state and local governments and that the blue state model was expensive it was incompetent and that over time um it was going to fall apart of its own contradictions now that has not happened yet, Qu quite the opposite, it would appear. I mean, uh, a lot of the fights in cities and uh, in blue states and all that are between the left and the far left who accept most of the same premises, but some of them say, yeah, you're crazy. You, you, what you're doing is a little too crazy, but but where a, where a conservative Republican is concerned, they're both crazy and they're both not, neither of them is challenging the basis of this blue state model. Well, you know, we are now for whatever reason, we are now facing an actual legitimate crisis in the blue state model that, that has, that has a potential for far reaching electoral consequences. Cause they're not about irresponsible spending or they're not about, you know, privileging, you know, sort of doing diversity stuff and all that. We're actually talking now about root problems in everyday life that are poisoning and worsening the lives of people in the blue states, mostly relating to crime, but mostly relating to policies that have been put in place by the blue state model to address inequities, supposed inequities in criminal justice and, and crime. I'm talking about bail reform laws. I'm talking about the idea of um, limiting or ending prosecution for petty offenses. Um, I'm talking about um, attitudes toward police officers that are compelling police officers to basically go back in their cars and do whatever they can not to have confrontational moments with uh with criminals uh, less their body cameras be used against them and all of that and we have now hard data hard not just anecdote but hard data in philadelphia the murder rate has doubled it's not even the murder rate the number of murders has doubled uh each year in the past two years over the rate every year from 2013 to 2016. Baltimore now has more has had more murders in the last year than it did at the height of the crack epidemic. And in California, we are seeing this psychotic epidemic of mob crime uh, due to the public announcement that there would be no prosecutions uh, for petty theft under uh, of a value under $1,000 make a public announcement saying we are not going to prosecute anybody who steals goods that are uh, worth less than a thousand dollars. And guess what? People are stealing goods up to $999 and 99 cents. And they're doing so in mob settings because of course that's harder to attack, harder to track and, uh, and, and, and creates the conditions under which there can be, can be more of these. This is going on in every city. Philadelphia has a, has the worst uh, progressive prosecutor in the country, Larry Krasner, or the, it's sort of like the model of the progressive prosecutor. Uh, San Francisco, where some of this petty crime stuff originated, has Chesa Boudin, son of two terrorists, um, imprisoned, jailed terrorists, raised by uh, another family of would-be terrorists, uh, who is now the the DA in San Francisco. Um, and uh, and and you have in anecdotally, um, streets are just less safe uh, in New York. People are getting killed uh, or or attacked or injured or robbed in a, a manner and a form that we not only haven't seen since the 1980s, but really haven't seen since since the 1970s. You know, I just want to say some of this stuff isn't even the result of the uh, radical reform efforts. It is just um, the standard boilerplate uh, blue model that you uh, uh, talk about. It's like the 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 suspect um, in the in the Waukesha drive-through parade murder, you know, was, had had been uh, previously uh, released on thousand dollars bail. That's the that that's that accords with the standard uh, bail schedule there, like sort of long established 
for for his level of crime. It's not that's not even the result of a new uh, reform. I mean, so so that's that's seeing the the institutional failure at work. Well, and that's a similar uh, effect is happening here in D.C., a long term effort to make uh, sentencing of juvenile criminals much more lenient and to give them. And, and by the way, the city council here said up to age 25, I'm sorry, but 25 is not a juvenile. So we've seen such a rash of armed carjackings and armed robberies. Uh, armed robberies in my uh, particular ward are up over 100% since last year. I mean, it's insane number of armed robberies. But we had a local news station yesterday send out tips to residents of D.C. about how to avoid getting carjacked because we're at the point now where we've given up, I guess, on trying to prevent uh, prevent them. And when cops do, they they there's a no chase law. They can't chase these people. The ones that have been caught recently been caught by federal police officers who are allowed to give chase. So even when these kids are captured and they are kids, they're 12 and 13 year olds, they're cycled through the juvenile justice system right back out on the street and they're carjacking again, often with an adult in the vehicle. So they hand the gun to the minor. So the minor is the one who's prosecuted for the for the gun charge. And so they'll be cycled right out. And, and the adult who's in, in many cases, you know, getting these kids to, to, to do this stuff with them gets a lesser charge. So this is just like tips on how not to get carjacked. This is not this is not good. <laughs> And I, 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 I swear to you, this is how it all came apart for liberals. This is how it all came apart for liberals in the early 1970s when they were sort of ideologically predominant. Like there, there, there was very little counter response to liberal solutions for uh, American problems. And then the general effect of anti-liberal argument was they care more about criminals than they care about ordinary people. This had many <clears throat> results uh, over over time. The 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 requirement in courtrooms that victims be allowed to make statements before sentencing, for example, which was never done, had never been, I mean, this became law in most states and federally, uh, the victim impact statement, uh, the toughening up of bail rules and regulations, and, uh, the, and finally the uh, sentencing guidelines, which... Uh, which basically tried to remove from liberal judges the temptation to go easy on criminals uh, because there was no way to do that uh, given lifetime judicial tenure. Here we have something else. We have here laws that have been passed to uh, you know eliminate bail to uh, we have, prosecutors showing discretion elected prosecutors showing discretion in saying they will not prosecute certain types of cases we have some laws going into this that say we 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 will no longer prosecute cases which if you actually think about it you put laws on the books that say that uh, petty theft is a crime and then you announce that you are not going to prosecute anyone for petty crime uh, how is that not ultimately antinomian? Like there are laws on the books that say this is a crime. You're there is such a thing as prosecutorial discretion. Obviously, we know there is, and prosecutors can't prosecute every possible case and have to pick and choose as to what they're going to do with their resources to it. But when you when you when you announce that an entire area of crime is no longer basically going to be treated as crime, um, is that even legal? Is that legitimate? Is that is that can that stand for long? Well, and it, it at the heart of this liberal argument about crime is is a punishing body count for the very group that the liberals claim to represent, speak for, and want to protect, which is minority communities. Um, Rav Aurora over at City Journal just wrote a recent piece that that discussed this racial disparity. If you want to look at systemic racism in crime, don't look at who's prosecuted and who's not. Look at the crime victims, because this the homicide spike in particular over the last year or two years has disproportionately affected black communities and Hispanic communities. These are the neighborhoods 
where the and the perpetrators are often often minorities as well. But if you want to look at who to protect in society, it's the law abiding members of these minority communities who live in these neighborhoods and feel unsafe and don't like the direction that, that the country is going in terms of liberalizing bail and all these other things, because many high profile cases in, in just the last I'm thinking about the last month, there is a Columbia University grad student murdered by someone out on on, or, you know, early release bail. There was a there were students in the University of Chicago have been killed again, often by people who've been released early. So the there's a real body count here. And I think the, the minority communities that have been saying we don't want defund the police, we want good, well-trained cops protecting our neighborhoods. Where where is their representative on the left? Where are they? You know, we've talked a lot about gentrification over the last 50 years and, you know, 40 years and the injustice, the economic injustice of white people moving into black neighborhoods and sort of taking them over, making them too expensive for poor and working class people and then driving them further away where they can't, you know, they, they don't have easy access to public transportation, things like that. But, you know, gentrification itself is a result of an earlier form of reverse gentrification, which is that there were these neighborhoods, particularly in New York, but all over all over America, um, where poor working class white people lived in proximity to poor working class blacks and Hispanics. And in the 1960s, when the crime rate spiked, one of the reasons for so-called white flight, what it wasn't rich white people who were only the people who who engaged in white flight finding another place to live it would people like my grandparents who lived in the crown heights neighborhood of brooklyn and who could no longer basically leave their apartment until my aunt who worked for the city got them on a waiting list for uh, what is called a mitchell llama building in a in a far distant brooklyn neighborhood and got them out of there um, it was dangerous. It was a they they and they were working class Yiddish speaking people who didn't have a nickel to their names, and it wasn't as though they were, you know, they were. That was the crime wave of the 1960s. It wasn't they were going into ritzy areas and then mugging rich people. Uh, crime is situational and often sometimes impulsive. And it was just, oh, look, there's an old, you know, look, there's a, there's an old white person. Uh, you know, I'm, let me go, let me go steal her purse. Let me go push the guy up against a wall with a knife and I'll take his wallet. I mean that, you know, like that, like not, not considered plan, not like one of these mob thefts from a Louis Vuitton, you know, but, um, uh, crime is always perpetrated locally and conveniently and so that is so yeah where we are now is those neighborhoods have basically been uh resegregated or they are segregated and therefore when crime is perpetrated in these neighborhoods it is perpetrated almost exclusively by people of the same <clears throat> ethnic or racial origin as the criminals the criminals prey on their own and that is a very, you know, interesting fact because then then there's all this look, hey, squirrel stuff where it's like, no, the problem is the cops. The well, danger that, is the cops. Well, that's that's where this statistic, one of the one of the uh, statistics in Rob's piece that was the most uh, striking to me was that there was an additional 2000 black lives lost uh, to homicide uh, compared to 2019. So there were 7,777 in 2019. There were 9,941 in 2020. And that, that, those are just, that's, those are numbers. Those don't even count what in some, uh, areas are called suspicious deaths. Those are ones that are not labeled homicide, but where a dead body turns up and they're not quite sure how the person died. So that's, a, that's an astonishing, number. And this is the same year that Black Lives Matter took to the streets and told everybody that Black Lives Matter. Um, those two things, you cannot look at those two facts and you cannot live in a, in a blue city and see the crime spike happening in real time without the, saying something is wrong here ideologically and politically. Well, look at, look at San Francisco. There was this horrifying story over the weekend about three police officers who go into a restaurant in San Francisco and are asked to leave the restaurant because they are 
They have guns because they're on-duty police officers in San Francisco, a city that has now been you know, rendered semi-unlivable. Um, and they were they were asked to leave the restaurant by the management of the restaurant who said that it was a gun, you know, it was a weapons-free restaurant and the policeman did not make them feel safe. And there was an outcry when this story emerged. And for 24 hours, the people who owned the restaurant defended themselves and said, look, this is San Francisco. I mean, we don't, we don't like this kind of thing. That's we, we live here because this is saying guns don't, guns are dangerous. Uh, yeah, da, da, da. And then, and then I think at some point they realized they had to apologize since of course these were police officers on duty police officers whose entire life is dedicated to protecting them from having their restaurant broken into or having them, you know, be victims of, uh, uh, of crime. But it was a fascinating glimpse into the suicidal nature of blue state ideology. But it, and it's and it's not it, it will spread if it's not checked, because there's a there was a mantra. It's repeated. It's it's part of the platforms of groups like Black Lives Matter and the Sunrise Movement. Any any sort of left leaning progressive social justice group says we keep us safe. And what they mean by that is we don't like cops. We don't like any any actor, a state actor who's given leave to have a gun to protect society, to keep us safe. We keep us safe. And it was often repeated. You know, Antifa uses the same same phrase. If you look at the numbers, well, it's not working. We ha you have not kept yourself safe. You actually, there's very clear evidence that you need law enforcement's help, particularly if you're not a member of one of these movements who likes to take to the streets claiming we keep us safe. If you're just an ordinary person who doesn't have the time to protest all the time because you have a job and kids to raise. Well, you know what happened in these neighborhoods as they collapsed in the 1960s and the 70s was that, and, and police were following 911 policing rules, which is to say that they addressed crime after it happened, right? They stopped patrolling. They stopped being policemen on the beat. This was a whole new form of, of policing that revolutionized American, uh, you know, criminal justice. And uh, people organized watches, neighborhood watches, search, or, and uh, as it got worse and worse, um, self-defense organizations, the Jewish Defense League, which then, uh, which was a highly controversial organization uh, that ended up becoming a very radical uh, form of, uh, in, in Israel, became sort of morphed into a radical anti-Arab group called Kach. But the JDL started as a neighborhood watch. It started because in the Jewish neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, it was getting unsafe for people like my grandparents, and the cops weren't doing anything. And so the idea was they would walk around and protect protect Jews from 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 crime and then they got radicalized and more and more radicalized and so by the way if yeah so if what you want to do is we keep us safe which is a Tocquevillian concept if you think about it like we well, it's are been so, perverted by restorative justice notions but yeah right exactly <laughs> but if you want to keep us safe so keep us safe be a be be like the guardian angels confront confront criminals uh make raise the cost of criminals doing business and try to help people in your community uh, be safe from predation. But that's not what's going on at all. No, it's it's violent. The other the other thing that you see is the, their argument is, well, well, we do that in a different, more loving, inclusive way with violence interrupters, which have not really I mean, the data on that. I've, I've looked I've, I've started looking at it in more of a deep dive is not not great. Um, a lot of cities have, my city has, anytime there's an outbreak of violence, it's, well, we'll send in the violence interrupters and the violence continues apace or, or greater. So, but there are all these, they have all these sort of sloganeering that the kind of things that you imagine a McKinsey consultant coming up with and throwing at a problem like this, rather than a behavioral scientist, which is really what you need on some of this. Right. Okay. Look, so let me ask you guys, did you know that 97% of the chickens served in the United States are dipped in chlorine? They are. Why? Well, big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. And that's why I'm here to talk to you about moinkbox.com. Uh, the best bacon, the best steak, the best chicken, the best salmon you'll ever eat won't come from the grocery store. You'll only find it on the family farm and caught by independent Alaskan fishermen. That's why you need moinkbox.com. 
Uh, their animals are raised outdoors. Their fish swim wild in the ocean. Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month. Cancel any time. Moink was founded by an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever tasted. And Jamie Simonoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. They'll guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm so happy I got moinked. So join the moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now. And listeners to this show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. And look, it's the holidays. You deserve a gift. How about a gift that keeps on giving you joy and comfort every day all year long? A gift that looks as good as it feels. A gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be. I'm talking about giving yourself the gift of an X chair. By far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And honestly, maybe the coolest piece of furniture I own. Not only is X chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair and can even either cool or warm your back. Can your office chair do that? I don't think so. So now is the perfect time to purchase an X chair. Buy early, buy now. And here's X chair's holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X chair just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com and save xchaircommentary.com. Uh, any quick last thoughts on the phone call? The much brooded about, the much advanced, the much discussed phone call between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin on Putin's uh, designs on Ukraine. How excited are we about this phone call? Do we think this phone call is going to change? Is this is this phone call the phone call to end all phone calls? Well, I'm 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 you know, sort of discouraged by the fact that it's publicized at all, because that tells me that uh, the event of the phone call is 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 the um, is sort of the main uh, um, message that that the administration wants to get out. Right. Um, there, there should, of course, be a phone call. There should be several phone calls. I don't know that we need to know about it as, uh, as this sort of guess what? This amazing thing is going to happen. The president no. of the United States is, is going is to talk to talk to Putin about this. Well, it's not atypical for this sort of thing to be publicized. It would be completely, it would be uh, odd for it uh, for us not to have a readout of it, for example, even one that's uh, redacted or not redacted, but doesn't include a lot of the details of the conversation. Um, but it follows a similar trajectory to what we experienced in March and April after a, a similar buildup, albeit one that was smaller in scale where there was this very highly publicized phone call between Biden and Putin. And that crisis was diffused, uh, as it were, when Joe Biden offered uh, as a reward for, for Putin's brinkmanship, a bilateral summit. The bilateral summit didn't produce any concessions. Uh, and we subsequently find ourselves in this place in large measure, in my, in my view, because in the interim, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal indicated to the Kremlin that the president was much more pliant than they believed in the face of real genuine threats. Um, the details of this call suggest that uh, as a means of deterring what everybody now seems to believe is imminent aggression against Ukraine, they are preparing the quote, nuclear option, the nuclear option of sanctions, the mother of all sanctions, um, which would be to cut Russia's access to the SWIFT international payment system. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of the SWIFT international payment system before I've I heard that it was the nuclear option, the worst of all possible sanctions, dug into it and found out that Europe has been retailing this idea for some time, even voted uh, to the effect of, uh, of uh, uh, endorsing this sort of approach. And it seems as though Russian representatives have priced this into their actions. If you, uh, there's stories uh, about representatives for the Kremlin talking about uh, having basically assumed that this and other economic sanctions would be forthcoming, uh, baked it into their calculations, and uh, are 
to the extent that can be believed, and perhaps the costs of such a measure, if they were pursued, will be harder to absorb than they anticipate. But Moscow has anticipated it, and they don't seem deterred at all. Uh, and to the extent that we have any literature on the effect, why would you think that? Because the literature is clear over the last 30 years. We have found no evidence to suggest that economic sanctions of any sort, nuclear or, or, uh, or otherwise, uh, change a regime's behavior. And particularly when that regime is pursuing what it views as its grand strategic interests. And we have every reason to believe that Moscow believes that it is unacceptable to have a westward oriented Ukraine sacrificing their pursuit of strategic depth. This is a grand strategic interest and they will pursue it aggressively, militarily if they want and costs be damned. Um, that's the sort of thing that you cannot deter in the absence of a credible threat of force and neither Europe or Washington seems prepared to go to that length. I, I just wanna be clear on what I meant by the fact that it's being you know so highly publicized. Of, of, yeah, of course. When there's, it's it's common to know, you know, uh, certain under certain circumstances when when leaders communicate with one another, but but that's not always when uh, important things happen. There are there are other meetings, back channels. People represent uh, the U.S. and and make make our interests known um, uh, in ways that we don't find out about until much later. I'm thinking of, for example, after 9/11, when uh, Bush let uh, Pervez Musharraf of uh, Pakistan know that if he was going to mess around with everything we were about to do, that according to Musharraf's account, uh, we were, we were going to bomb them into the Stone Age. Um, those, kind of, those kind of decisions and those kind of communications don't, don't appear sort of, you know, with this uh, great fanfare and uh, celebratory um, uh, uh, sort of, you know, preview. Well, I'll just uh, I'll 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 end the podcast on this story. George Schultz, um, you know, who died this year, uh, the legendary Secretary of State, uh, who had also been um, uh, Labor Secretary at the beginning of the Nixon administration, told me once, astonishing like uh, feat of um, memory and and uh, and uh, anecdote uh, at the age of like ninety four, told me the story that um, he had been labor secretary and there was a either work stoppage or a crisis at the port of New Orleans. Um, and that uh, the Teamsters, there was a whole thing going on and, uh, and an effort was being made to resolve it so that the Nixon administration could take credit for having resolved this labor, this, uh, this labor stoppage or whatever it was going on. And uh, it was deemed so politically uh, potent uh, that when the deal was being struck, uh, or it looked like the deal was being struck, Nixon was actually going to get on a plane, get on Air Force One, fly down to New Orleans, and basically be there to announce that the crisis was over and that they had succeeded in this. And Schultz was the person who was doing the negotiating, and Nixon apparently was just about to get on the plane or had gotten on the plane and was flying, and Schultz called the plane and said, turn around and go back because we haven't gotten this done and these people cannot get a presidential visit and cannot have the president involved. This need, you are the, you know, this is the icing on the cake. The cake has to be baked and completed you know, we cannot allow you to be, you know, mired here in the middle of a negotiation that you do not know the end of and that we don't know the end of. One would hope that in a phone call like this, all of that back channel work that Abe was talking about would have happened and that the purpose of the phone call was to de-escalate tensions and was the, was the conclusion of a process, not the beginning of the process. Right, that's what the president and Putin get together and say. We're going to do. We're going to take these three or four measures to cool things off. That's why we're having this conversation. Our 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 deputies, our people under us, have done all the spade work on how that's going to work logistically, and we're there to shake hands virtually and and bring the world into a safer place. I have no confidence whatsoever that that is what is going to happen. That is not the way that people are talking about this behind the scenes. It is apparently left entirely to Biden and Putin to have this conversation. 
Putin is wilier, smarter, and more able than Biden. Uh, he has been doing this for a very long time and has outwitted and outfoxed presidents, including Obama and Trump and others, in some way, shapes, or forms. And um, and you know he's just going to eat Biden's lunch. And Biden stands there, thinks that he's some grand strategist and brilliant diplomatic player. Um, and uh, I think we should hold out a very little hope that anything but catastrophe is going to come from this. That in ordinary times with ordinary circumstances with, with a well-run and well-managed and well-considered executive, what is happening here would not happen without a, pre without a sort of predetermined end to the conversation. Well, catastrophic is the word for it <clears throat> coming. I and mean, if this were to materialize and who knows what an advance would bring, would they go to Mirapol, port city on the, in the East, East uh, Black Sea coast? Would they go all the way to Odessa and swallow up the whole Black Sea coast? Would they sack Kiev, which is uh, what at least German media is reporting and the Washington post implies. And it's in its report about this buildup. Um, would they swallow up an, a, a NATO partner and Ukraine is a valuable NATO partner. They have contributed to our missions in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we are providing them with uh, <coughs> uh, economic, non-lethal and lethal military aid. Would they intervene in such a way that would demonstrate that no American partner is safe just after six months after Afghanistan? I mean, the, the threat to the, to the the existing global order and American hegemony is total. Crushing morosity. That's our brand. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoretz. Keep the candle burning.